Hey, how you doing? Welcome to the Fell Pony Podcast. I'm Tom Lloyd, and it's really lovely to have you all here again. In today's show, we're going to hear some great stories and memories about working horses and ponies. Libby Robinson's journey has weaved its way through three countries, but has always kept coming back to working ponies. A couple of years ago, Libby moved her globetrotter herd of fell ponies from France to re-establish them as a semi-feral herd on a Cumbrian fell. And now her journey has turned into a quest to establish a fell pony heritage centre to protect the fell pony breed characteristics and preserve the working practices for future generations. Hey Libby, how are you doing? Are you out of your wellies yet? No, I've still got them on. <laughs> <laughs> has it been a long, hard winter, this one? It has. It has. Snowed twice. Not good. But they're okay. It's good. It's really good up there. And the lark is now singing and the meadow pipit. So, yeah, it's good. Let's go right back to the start, Libby. So, so where does this journey begin? I'll start when I am three. Uh, I was born on a farm in County Donegal in Ireland, where my father had retired uh, to farm after his career in the, in the army. I'm standing at the beautiful window in this Georgian farmhouse and looking out onto the farmyard. I can remember this as clear as if it was yesterday. And it's very, very strange because it builds so much to what I've done. The uh, farm had 30 milking cows, dairy shorthorns. And father used to sell the milk to the local dairy. Now this is about 1959, 1960. And uh, the two men come in with flat carts and they have churns on the back of the flat carts. And they both come in with their horses and they're walking at the horses' heads. They throw up the reins onto the hames of the collar and they go off into a corner and they have a cigarette. While they're having a cigarette, the horses by themselves, back and fill to where the churns of milk will be put onto the carts. Now that I call teamwork. And the teamwork between the horses and the men is just spot on. And I can remember that. And so that is my inspiration for a lot of things I've done in my life. That's amazing. That's a, that's a lovely story. Yeah, that's a good one. So what was your first encounter with fell ponies? This is uh, Kentmere. Um, when we, we moved from Ireland a year, about a year after that, actually, because <laughs> my father could not farm because he'd had so many bad illnesses um, while he'd been in the army and had to retire. Um, and we went to live in the Lake District. We went to live in Kentmere and I was about eight and totally pony mad and uh, there was a pony, a black pony, down in a field outside um, Kentmere Hall 
And I went to ask if I could ride this pony. And they said, oh, yes, yeah, yeah, go, you can go and talk to, talk to the pony. And, and I did climb onto the pony's back. I must have done, because I remember going down his neck with all this mane uh, until I reached his ears. And then he put his head up and uh, I walked on, got back onto his back and walked around. Years later, Sarge Noble and I were talking together about ponies. And I said to him uh, this story about how I first met the fell pony. And he said to me, <laughs> with a wry smile on his face, that pony was my stallion, Heltondale Prince, who was on holiday in Kempmere. <laughs> Ah, uh, well, there you <laughs> better, you do, better you don't know sometimes. <laughs> so there, so I was impressed, obviously, uh, even at that age. I just loved them, and they've always been my favourite breed. I borrowed people's ponies. <laughs> uh, I learnt to ride. Uh, luckily, my parents were happy enough to give me a good education in both school and and riding but it wasn't until I was 21 did I buy my first pony and that was believe it or not a, um, a Connemara cross thoroughbred but I still knew that one day I would have a fell pony. Mm. 1979 by that time I'd done a diploma at art college in illustration and graphics, which brought me no job at all, apart from working for the uh, uh, Audent Survey, drawing maps, and I didn't want to do that. So I went farming. So that was milking cows. I was a relief milker, pulling turnips, um, basically just becoming a dog's body and learning. Farmhand. Farmhand, that's right. Uh, but always in the back of my mind is this working horse and the wonderful partnership that these ponies and horses and humans had in working on the land. And, and I, I am and always have been a farmer at heart, but the farming and the ponies come together because of the workability of these native breeds of ponies. So living in Kentmere, there would have been plenty. There'd have been fell ponies all around. You didn't all around. So, so when did you get your first one? Gosh, I must have been about twenty-two. We had a small holding in Dorset, Devon border, and this small holding, we uh, had free-range pigs, and we sold the wieners. So. There was me thinking, right, I need a pony that I can work. I need a pony that's already broken to cart work so that I can have one to do the mucking out with, to haul bales of straw about, uh, to be useful, to actually go to the feed place that was about five miles away uh, and bring the feed back to the farm so that it was it was something that I really wanted to have a look into and see whether it was the possibilities so I contacted Peggy Crossland so for anybody listening at home doesn't know Peggy Crossland was the secretary of the Felpony Society 
And she also had, um, what was her stud? Um, Peggy Crossland had Packway, of course. She said to me, you will not find a foul mare that is broken in to ride, let alone drive, anywhere. So I, I, I kept looking and I kept inquiring and about ooh, eight or nine months later, I uh, discovered a, an advertisement in, believe it or not, The Horse and Hound. And it was a dealer and this dealer had some native ponies for sale. So I rang him up. He was in Leeds. He said to me, I have a fell pony mare that I have just swapped for a Clydesdale. You can come and see her. So I arrive in the morning and the guy says, oh yes, she's just done her morning work. And I thought, oh, this sounds good. So he goes to a shed at the back of the yard and opens up the door and in there, as black as black, is a fell pony um, standing, sort of waiting, I think, to be fed. And she's called Admagil Ursula. She has a papers. She's got a National Pony Society, uh, just a plain piece of paper. Uh, Another one, yeah. yeah. She's four. Um, and she's just done three hours in a coal cart, hauling coal in the back streets in Leeds. I said, OK, well, can I drive her? And, and the guy said, yes, of course you can. So we took her out for a drive round and she was, she was lovely. She was quiet, she was sensible, she knew what she was doing. And so we put her back in the shed and what really sealed the deal for me was she looked round. You know how they look back at you? And she looked back round at me and you could see it in her face. Oh, I like you. And I thought, that's it, got to have this pony. So Peggy came home. Peggy was just lovely, um, perfect temperament. In fact, she had uh, quite well-promoted um, parents, um, being a daughter of Edenview Moonstroller. Ah, yes. Who is a famous driving pony, owned by uh, the, the late Jane Brinley. Now, Jane Brinley was one of my friends and mentors in saying, come on, Libby, you can do this. And uh, used to help me, uh, certainly later on when I was doing my driving qualifications with the BDS. That's amazing. So when did you start breeding fell ponies then? The first pony I bred was from Peggy. Now, 1989, we were in Staffordshire. I was married to a gardener, the head gardener of um, Stretton Hall. And they were actually revamping um, the whole outside gardens, which was probably about 10, 10 acres. And Peggy got the job of being the garden pony. Now, the garden pony is an unwritten book of mine. I have lots of reference material about how ponies were used in the large estate gardens, obviously for haulage but also how they used them as lawn mower pullers and things like that which were always extremely interesting but you see by this time I'd got to know certain people like Charlie Pinney, Jeff Morton, uh, these were all farming horse 
farming people. Jeff Morton had a, a big farm, a big farm working big heavy horses, didn't he? My brother Bill did his did his time over at Jeff Morton, I think, with big teams of big horses. Yes, so so did I. Eight horses attached in one long line, pulling Cambridge discs over a field that the seed has just gone in. The most incredible feeling. I was helping with Jane Glass at the Wold Stud, which was about 15 miles away from me. And uh, she would buy in ponies, say Heltondale ponies from Sarge, or Dryborough's ponies from Chris Thompson, and had a friend who broke them in to ride. Then they'd come over to me, and I would train them to drive. And then we would split the difference when they were sold and uh, we were making you know a bit of a, a a bit of a rather interesting training go here now in the middle of this I was taking my carriage driving qualifications with the PDS and I got up to level three which is to drive singles and pairs to a high standard and that I was able to then teach. So I was beginning to teach a bit of carriage driving and uh, the local agricultural college, which was Rod Baston College, Staffordshire Agricultural College, asked me to do short courses. And the short courses I decided to do was a weekend on how to train and drive and work a native pony. So it was basically courses for people to come and I could bring all my equipment, I could bring um, Peggy. And uh, we ran these weekend courses and they were a great success. So you've got Peggy and you've had her for a few years. I did, I bred one foal out of her. I should have brought, bred more, but circumstances changed. So I only bred one foal, which was in 1989, when I first got my Globetrotter prefix. And that was Globetrotter Robin. And Globetropper Robin's father was Jane Glass's lovely stallion, Weaverhead Rob. At some point then, you've only had one foal from Peggy, you must have bought some other mares. So where did you go? What were you looking for? Were you looking for a type or different bloodlines? No, workability. Another foal pony that I could use in running of the courses. So Jane Glass rang me up one morning and said, I have a friend who breeds Exmoor ponies on Wimbledon Common, knows that there is a very good felt pony going up for sale and will go to Southall Market. She's very difficult to handle. Now, that was March and I was going up to the Reading carriage sale. I had a client who wanted to buy a smart gig and... Uh, she gave me a lift up to the Reading sale. I left her there to have a look at the vehicles and I took the train to London and I went to see this pony. This pony was in the yard of Linda Goodall before she became a famous cob breeder and presenter. Her son, Matthew, who was 14, had this pony, fell pony, Scargill May, a brown fell pony of about 13-2, who was in this yard, which was probably no bigger than a small barn, and there were 30 ponies in there, all with swing boards between each. Mm -hmm. 
I said I'd like to take her for a drive. And uh, so three, three very big burly men went off and got her and uh, tried to put harness on her. And she kicked and she bit and she jumped up and down. And in the end, they managed to harness her up and they put her into a flat car. Now, Matthew, who owned her as the son, wanted to buy a motorbike. So I asked him, why did he want to buy a motorbike? He said, I need to do faster pizza deliveries. At the moment, I'm just using this pony. This is Wandsworth in London. <laughs> so what happens is, once she's standing in the shafts, she just calms down. And so what we did was we jumped onto the flat cart and we took her out through Wandsworth over Putney Bridge. And Matthew said, oh, do you want to see how she really goes? And I said, oh, yes, please. So over Putney Bridge into Westminster, and would you believe it, around Hyde Park Corner. Eight lanes of traffic. She knew every lane. She knew the traffic sequences. She knew exactly what she was doing. And she went like a train. She was superb. I thought, well, I've got to have this pony. Just has the something about her that, oh, irresistible. Amazing. Uh, horse-drawn pizzas. Me and one of my now best friends, we, we met at a festival about 20 years ago. We were both there with horses and we uh, we had we were doing, we had a chip shop. We called it Clippity-Clop Chip Shop. <laughs> <laughs> That's another story. So you got home and you started breeding off her as well as working her? No, I got headhunted. I had a letter from the Black Country Museum in Dudley. So this put a an end to my breeding for the time being because they wanted me to work for them and look into how they could establish a working carter's yard within the open museum. It was 30 acres. It had a little town there with a bottle and glass pub. Uh, it was on the canal, uh, famous for its canal boats and for its history of canals. And also they wanted a bit more of the working animal in the museum to what they called dress the street. And they gave me the opportunity to actually live in the museum, which was quite interesting because by the time 10 o'clock came, you had to dress in your uh, Victorian costumes and uh, you couldn't have a car anywhere near the house or anything like that because it was all absolutely um, authentic. When I left the museum, I got the opportunity to go up to Cumbria. I went to Colbeck and I had a, a working partner, which hopefully we could do a carriage driving museum. I'd sort of built up more knowledge. I was always learning. I'd been to some incredible places where I'd been able to go as part of the museum, like Beamish and uh, other places where I've learnt a great deal about the history of the uh, working horse and also transport. I was able to obtain my tandem bars so driving tandem with Precious in front, always the leader, Peggy behind, the dependent wheeler. Wonderful, they were wonderful. Okay, so this is the part of the show everybody's been waiting for, where we call the herd home. So I'm gonna go first, Libby, and I'm gonna give my mares a shout as if I'm calling them home, and then I'd like you to do the same for the Globetrotter mares. Okay, so I'll go first, here we go. Come on! 
like what you're hearing, why not come and join the herd at Patreon and help us continue to provide great content for free. As well as podcasts, we've already uploaded over an hour of Felpony films to our Felpony Adventures YouTube channel. So come and join the herd at patreon.com slash felpony. You've been gallivanting all around the country and you've got this Globetrotter prefix and then Globetrotter goes global. So what's that story? Yes, it goes global because um, couldn't afford, uh, just couldn't afford to buy uh, land to breed fell ponies. And it's something that ever since the age of eight, I would like to have done. So we we had enough money to buy a, a farm, a small farm in, in France. But uh, my partner, David is a pilot, retired now. So he could work by doing uh, sectors in different parts of Europe and we could afford to uh, buy this farm in France, which we did in near Limoges. And so that's when I started seriously breeding. Now we took out three fell ponies. I found another fell pony just before we left for France, which was Dean Dimitri. Now, Ailey Newell had been another uh, really, really uh, good friend and so knowledgeable. And I'd spent many happy hours talking to her about her ponies. And I greatly admire the Dean ponies. I managed to find dear old Dean Dimitri. There was a contact that I had that this pony just couldn't be broken to harness because she was too scared about what was going on behind her. Would I like to buy her? So we did. So we took three mares out to France. Then I had to find a stallion. I was very lucky in looking at the stud books and saw that there was a gentleman further down in in France, um, right down the other end of the Dordogne at a place called Nijac. He had three fell ponies, including a stallion called Dean Tiviot. Now, he was 12 and he didn't want to breed anymore. And he was a ride and drive. And so we bought him. So the first four ponies we bred were by him. So did you build the herd up to a, diff- to a, a significant size? How many ponies were you breeding while you were in France? I think we're up to about 26, 27 ponies we've bred now. But that includes the ones that I've bred since we came back in 2018. Yeah, so let's get on to that. So you actually brought them back to their natural feeding grounds from southwest France and you managed to get your herd back on a fell, uh, Roundthwaite Common, where Bert and Carol Moreland ran the Loonsdale ponies. How did all that happen? What, what's the story? Well, let's go back to 2017. I'd been the uh, Fell Pony Society's representative for the French branch of fell ponies to promote them extremely difficult in France, another language, not particularly keen on a working pony. They liked Connemara's, New Forests, uh, that could do dressage and show jump. I'd had a conversation with a lady who was trying to set up breeding ponies in France, fell ponies, and she was Dutch. And she said to me, oh, but you can breed ponies anywhere. Anywhere in the world you can breed ponies. 
And I thought, no, you can't. No, you can't. Fell ponies come from Cumbria. They always will. And so I thought to myself, right, well, I'll have a look what's happening in Cumbria. And being in Europe and being in contact with quite a few of the Europeans, um, studs and European uh, branches, because there was the, obviously the daughter society in Holland. Then there was a, a branch in Denmark, a branch in um, Germany. And because I found out so much about what was going on and seeing it as another perspective, so seeing it away from the Cumbria and away from England, I realised that really the foundations of the breed need some more help. And so that's when I started to look at data and research in about coming back. I wrote to so many people. I uh, con had emails, uh, correspondence with different organisations, National Trust, the Rare Breed Survival Trust, all the uh, wildlife trusts, just so, so many people. And I asked two important things, that the ponies, I wanted to bring all the ponies back. I just thought to myself, I can't leave them in France trying to find someone who really understands them as a breed and what they can offer because of their workability. I found, in the end, a contact at Holker Hall who was interested in offering me grazing with grazing rights. It took me 18 months to get there and to get it all settled and signed and be able to do, but it's been well worth it because the ponies are in a place where I can feel really contented about and I can go and see them and I'm still learning, you always do learning about how they live in their environment. And so we were very, very lucky. It was really strange. Everything kind of fell into place. It was like following the right path. We uh, were able to hire a race horse lorry that took 18 horses. He was able to take five carriages, harness and 11 ponies all in one go which was ideal. <laughs> Amazing. So this is really positive, isn't it? Because in this time when we are losing herds, you have managed to get a herd back on the common. So let's just talk a little bit about about that because you can't, you know, you, you can't just turn ponies out anywhere. You have to have fell rights. So so should we just go into that a little bit about ownership of commons and fells and rights and how do we get them? These fell rights come with the land and this is this is usually what what the procedure is. Um, it's a charter that goes back to the 13th, 13th century. It is that the owners, and all the fells have owners, uh, which are the wealthy barons at that time, land that was bequested to them from the king or the queen. Everything that is below ground level belongs to the landowners. So they had the rights for the minerals, they had the rights for the slate mines, um, and everything above ground level, so all the vegetation and the trees, were bequeathed to 
the farmers and yeomen who farmed around the fell wall. The deal was that uh, if there was a war, a skirmish, uh, that there was rights to be fought for, then the farmers would lay down their arms and picks and forks and spades and take up swords and go and fight for the landowners. And then in 1969, we have the Commons Registration Act. So in the uh, Carlisle Registry Office, I've been there, I've seen it, I've waded through it. It's about 10 or 12 huge, huge book volumes which tell you with maps of who owns which bit of land, who has rights, and there can be rights for cows, sheep, ponies, geese. In 1969, they said, well, we've got 100 sheep, 20 cows, and 10 ponies. So it goes in the book, and that's what they have rights from, from then. And all, and fell right, if I'm right, I think here, fell rights can actually be converted between animals, can't they? They can. These fell rights that I have for the ponies is a conversion from cattle. They were cattle rights, and we had to convert them to ponies, and... Uh, Holker Hall Estate did that for me. I know there are people out there who would love to set up a herd of fell ponies and, you know, you've kind of gone through that, you've gone through the process, it is possible. So, so how would you go about changing the rights? Is that through the registry office in Carlisle? Yes, well, the estate would have to uh, apply to change the rights. Obviously, if they were trying to change the rights just from a small group of sheep, you couldn't change the rights for 20 sheep to 20 ponies it would have to be a lot more sheep for you to be able to have the equivalent rights for the ponies. But the cattle to the ponies was easier to do, so the rights were changed. I just happened to be really in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing, and we were able to get these pony rights, which of course saved the whole project in the fact that I could practice what I preach. That's brilliant. Really, really good. I want to get onto the driving now. So both you and David ride, but you've also done a lot of competition carriage driving, haven't you? Quite competitive, I suppose, really. Found a competitive pony in uh, Precious who loved it just as much as I did. Um, and uh, we, yes, we, we slowly built up a working partnership. Am I right in thinking that you were taught to drive coachman style by one of the coachmen from the Royal Muse? I had connections with the Royal Muse because I helped and worked with a lady who had a very, very high reputation in the carriage driving world. Her name is Caroline Dale Leach. She ran a very, very um, important training yard for carriage driving tuition and also for uh, junior whip um, tuition. She had a junior whip camp there every summer. Um, at Matlock in Derbyshire, called Darley Dale Stables. And in 2015, you were awarded the Duke of Edinburgh Prize for driving by the Felpony Society. Yes. Uh, 2014 in France, I decided, right, I am going to do a year for me. So with the pair of ponies and the equipment I had, we built up fitness and fitness and fitness and more fitness to do endurance carriage driving in France. So that meant you could qualify for the international event and we managed to qualify in the uh, driven pony class and for about 40 days we were probably sixth in France as the uh, most important pair driver of ponies. 
so yes, we were awarded the Duke of Edinburgh Prize for Driving, which is an international award given by the Fell Pony Society. And what a wonderful thing it is too. So you've got your ponies back on the fell on Round to Eight Common, and then you start trying to raise the profile for for all the fell ponies, didn't you? By you set up the Heritage of the Fells exhibition at Reged. Yes, Sarah Danning is the chairman of the Westmoreland Group, and uh, as we'd come to live um, with the ponies at Roundthwaite near Teabay, we were right in Dunning country. Uh, and the Dunning family had had fell ponies before uh, the motorway was there. And the reason that uh, the Westmoreland group grew was because most of the farm was taken up by compulsory purchase by the motorway in the 1970s. So the Westmoreland group, they have Reggae, but also the, do they have the services at T-Bay as well? They do, the T-Bay services. I wrote then to Sarah Dunning and I said I'd like to have an exhibition at the Reggae Centre to help the fell pony hill breeders. And she wrote back and said, what a good idea. Letters went back and forth and uh, they then said, right, you can have Hall 1, which is a huge room. Free of charge. Well, tell me more about that. How many, how many people came through in the end? 9,448 people came to see the exhibition. And uh, always looking for something to do. You set yourself another task, haven't you? So tell us about what the big task is now, Libby. Well, of course, um, we were going on a bit of a roll after the exhibition, which is great, because the idea I have, which would be, I think, absolutely ideal in the Lake District in Cumbria is to have a exhibition permanently with a fell pony centre. And this centre, to emphasise how important it is for the hill breeders, uh, hopefully data and research to be done by the University of Cumbria, which are, I've already started, I have two students. Also terribly important to get as much information out there to the general public. Also for the centre to have a herd of ponies that are grazing extensively with grazing rights out on the fell. To be able to have apprentices and students, uh, big learning. It's young people. It's what we need is young people. People who have got a bit of, oh, I really want to do this. Because... You can. I have. I have come back and I have got my herd of ponies and they are publicising the breed. And this is what we need. So young people learning about how it's possible to take on a fell pony herd and build it up and have it on the fell. That is my goal. Where are you happiest, Libby? <laughs> on the fell with my ponies. <laughs> I know that all the fell pony breeders will say the same and think the same, but there's some kind of unity. They are meant to be there. They're part of the ecology. I've just been doing an, uh, a piece for regenerative agriculture. You see, I've been lucky enough in the last year to be on the Aims and Trials Committee for um, the new elms with DEFRA. So I've been able to get quite a lot of information from that end about what they're trying to do. 
tomorrow they have a Zoom meeting on how we are going to look after our landscape. Well, I've been invited to that, so I hope that we will talk more about how important the ponies are in this landscape that they're trying to create. It's the knowledge. As, as, if we can get the data, if we can get the knowledge, and it's staring in front of their faces, the people who make the decisions, then we might get somewhere. And with the regenerative agriculture, I started to write this article and I thought, this is the missing link. Horses and ponies were always on farms. They were part of the farming livestock. So they were part of all the systems on the farm. That meant the manure heap was part of them as well. Now, we have to remember that horses and ponies are not ruminants. They have a small stomach and a large gut, and they have top and bottom teeth, so they nip off their food. Now, it has been discovered through research all along the line of trying to uh, make a point about how important the ponies are, that the ruminant ferments his food, her food, and this means that part of that is that they can break down the very, very hard cellular that plants have around them to protect them. So it's the cellular in mature grass because we feed them on mature grass, cattle and sheep. So, but the ponies, because they've got a large gut system, they cannot break down this hard cellular. So they're looking for young shoots. They can cope with young shoots in their in their diet. Uh, they can use that. They also go for all the dead grasses and the dead shoots because, again, the cellular is already breaking down in the dead grasses. And so bringing together this information, you can see that the pony has its niche. The grazing pony, the grazing horse, was able to have its actual droppings, its dung. This is why it was always so good that horse manure always went to the horticultural farms that were just outside the large cities to grow the fruit and vegetables to go back into the cities to be eaten by the dwellers. It's this lovely rotation. It's the ponies that gave this amazing structure of dung that also helps insects. Insects that we so don't see as much of that we should do up on the fell. Also, fungi is another very important part of breaking down the soil. That loves horse dung. And there is other bacterias that will only go for horse dung. Interesting that at Galbra Hall Farm, where there are four fell ponies doing regenerative agriculture, they introduced Cunnily pigs. So the mob over there, which is 30-odd head of dairy shorthorn cattle, um, plus the four fell ponies, uh, plus these group of pigs, which is four, all interweave with the fact that they're all doing this amazing job and there will be a tremendous amount of very positive data will come from this. So let's hope there is a future for so many things for these ponies.
So we, we just have to just get the word out and get it in people's heads that these ponies are as vital a part of the ecosystem as as anything. That they are part they're a huge part of this ecosystem. They are. They are. And and so it gives them another feather to their cap. I mean, we know because of breeding fell ponies and owning fell ponies and having worked them and ridden them, we know how special they are because they are such a versatile breed. But in this modern world, we need them also to be able to look into science, technology, also into the modern farming systems. But in that, they have their place. So we must look at all doors, keep all doors open to be able to publicise and promote this wonderful breed. So many amazing stories, Libby. But we are winding up now to the uh, last five minutes. So I've got um, three quick questions for you. One word answers. So the first question, ride or drive? A drive. <laughs> it had to be drive, It's got it? to be drive. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Second question, favourite pony or line of ponies in the history of the breed? Favourite pony's got to be Scargill May. She was born in 1983 and died in 2013. Favourite why? Favourite to look at? Favourite because of what she did? She was a beautiful pony to look at, although she had a bit of white on her back feet. But to me, she was a spot-on fell pony. And a bit of white's allowed. You're allowed a little bit of white on the back foot. Yes. <laughs> Okay, third question. Black, brown, bay or grey? Brown. Brown, it's yes. got to be brown. I like the browns. I like the browns. <laughs> oh, well, Libby, that's been really, really interesting conversation with you there. I Again, you know, I, I often spend time with you and I always learn stuff and I've learned a whole load of stuff there tonight that I, I had no idea about um, your your history with the ponies so thank you so much Libby thank you so much and best wishes good luck with the Fell Pony Heritage Centre and let's get some more Fell Ponies back on those fells absolutely where they should be thank you Tom thank you very much bye bye listening back to that conversation reassures me that there are many people out there who are working hard to preserve the semi-feral herds of Fell Ponies and by focusing our efforts, and by sheer hard work and single-mindedness, those goals can and will be achieved. Thank you so much for listening to the series so far. I've been overwhelmed by the response, and we've found a new audience and new friends, not just here in the UK, but in China, Korea, Africa, and even the Caribbean island of Bonaire. Thanks to all of you for listening, and I will be back in a few weeks with another series and some more amazing guests. If you liked it, please do me a favour and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you really liked it, do me an even bigger favour and leave a review. It will really help us get the word out. A huge thanks to my patrons who make all this possible. I am eternally grateful for your support. So why not come and join the Patreon herd and help us keep this podcast alive? Find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and you'll be able to find more episodes wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. I'm Tom Lloyd, and you're listening to the Fell Pony Podcast. See you next time. Mm-hmm.